You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Doing fine. Doing fine. Hey, I have a question I've been thinking a lot about lately. Hmm? Do you think technology makes your life any better? Ooh, that's a big question. I've thought about that a lot. And I mean, in some ways, there's just like an obvious yes. I enjoy so many things I do with technology. I can order sushi on my computer. I think that's great. Right. My dad got me an Amazon Echo. He like loves them. I'm, although I'm like hesitant to use it, I feel like it's just spying on me constantly. So like I always have it unplugged. But yeah, I mean like, and I love social media. You know, we met on social media. We've developed a friendship. We've got a podcast, and so like it just led to these really cool ways to meet people that have similar interests than me. But I think there's been points in my life where I feel like I was using it poorly or overusing uh, in in ways that made me less happy. And so there's been points where I've like stopped and tried to adjust my, the ways I use. The social media diets, nice. Yeah, and cut it back or develop rules for myself. And it's hard to break habits though because you know what I mean? There's a lot of reasons why you get into certain habits. So I feel like I have a back and forth relationship with technology. It's a love-hate relationship. How about you? I agree with that. Sometimes I think it's fantastic. Other times I just want it to go away. Sometimes I just need to put my phone. Right now I don't know where my phone is. And I'm actually kind of okay because, I don't know, I get emails all the time. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just like you need to stop. You need to stop being accessible every single second. And I feel like, like, you know, making plans with friends nowadays, if you don't respond very quickly, they think like, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I'm sorry. I'm, you know, trying to do other things or have a conversation I've thought about this a lot with students too, right? Because our obviously our students are extremely connected. Um, their phones are an important part of their social lives. And I think some students probably have really good balance and use it in really great ways. But I think guidance is certainly needed. And, you know, we get these ideas in education out there about students being digital natives, you okay. know, because they grow up around uh, technology. But it seems like that assumes they know what they're doing. You know, it's like almost assuming like, just because someone grew up around people writing that they're good writers. That they're literal natives. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't like that whole thing. I don't either. In working with teacher candidates who are both traditional and non-traditional different ages, I've found a lot of disparity in young people who can use technology great and young people who are completely lost. Yeah. Uh, or they just because you know how to tweet doesn't mean you understand the technologies. You know. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, you still need guidance. I agree. And so we brought in a guest today who's going to help us think through these issues. He is He's our Yoda of thinking through educational oh, technology you, issues. You, I thought you said I could <laughs> not make any more Star Wars references. Oh, well, you can't. That's what I get to <laughs> I get to do it. And so we would like to welcome into the podcast David Levy. Welcome. Thank you. I, I'm delighted to be here. And we're so delighted to have you. David, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. Well, first of all, by training, I'm a computer scientist, a a technologist. I got my PhD in computer science at Stanford a long time ago. And basically, pretty much my whole career has been 
involved with uh, digital technologies. I worked for many years in Silicon Valley at a place called Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, where the personal computer was invented and integrated. And I have taught at the University of Washington in, in the information school for the past 15 or, or 16 years. So, so one whole thread of my own education is technology. But the other piece of it that's not so obvious from, let's say, my CV is that I'm also a contemplative, that I'm somebody who has had a long meditation practice. In fact, if you looked on my CV, you'd discover, in addition to my, you know, my undergraduate math degree and my um, PhD in computer science, that I have a degree in calligraphy and bookbinding from the Roehampton Institute in London, which doesn't seem to fit all that well, but it fits into my own life story because if, while I was still in my 20s and having a miserable time in graduate school, like many people I know, I started searching for, for other things that would sort of enrich my life and got interested in calligraphy, which I had been introduced to as a child. And what I now realize is that the study of calligraphy was my first meditative or contemplative practice. The background that I bring to my work is both the work of a contemplative and also the work of a technologist. That's really an interesting combination of backgrounds because when you think of technology, yeah, you just do think of this kind of fast-paced world. And when you think of calligraphy and these other practices, it's almost the opposite. Do you, Have those really kind of helped to craft the way you look at both of them? Have they affected each other? Trying to work out my own relationship between those two dimensions has been absolutely crucial to everything I've done personally and professionally because on the one hand, I'm, I know the fast world of, of high tech really well, but I have really felt the need since, since the early days of graduate school to find some sort of balance and to be able to slow down come back into my body um, and to live a, a richer and full, fuller life than I did, than I could when I was simply speeding along in, in my tech work. In fact, that's exactly where the work that I've been doing probably for the last 20 years as a scholar as a, and as a teacher comes from is exactly the attempt to, to bring the fast-paced life of tech and the slower-paced life of meditation and contemplation. I should add that I've, I've actually had a, if you like, a kind of mindfulness meditation practice for nearly three decades. I've seen mindfulness come up more and more in schools, you know, as a way to think about helping students slow down. And what do you see as the biggest benefits of mindfulness or contemplative practices? Well, I think there really are, are two that are tremendously relevant to all of us, but especially to, um, to younger people. One is the ability to train our attention. We're so aware of how easily distracted we all are. Although I don't work with young kids, I hear a lot from teachers. And one of the challenges is it seems like younger people increasingly are having trouble staying focused. So the ability to actually train our attention from an early age seems really important. And the other dimension that seems really important is emotion regulation. Our ability to deal with the difficult things, how to handle our difficult emotions, which clearly, I mean, you would know better than I, um, presumably being more involved in earlier uh, ages, K-12 and so on. It's a huge deal, uh, a part of education, uh, presumably, to get kids how to work out their problems and even to bring enough mindfulness or awareness to say, I'm having a problem right now. I'm having a meltdown. Maybe I need a little time off or a, t a time out. So, so emotion and attention seem to be huge dimensions of what it is required to live a good life at, in any era, and especially in, t in today's increasingly digital world. So can you tell us a little bit about your work on mindfulness and tech as an educator? Sure. It's been 
20 plus years that I've been thinking about this. In fact, the first paper I ever wrote on this subject came out in 1995. And the title of it was, I'm not here right now to take your call. Think about that for a moment. I'm not here right now to take your call. Subtitle, Technology and the Politics of Absence. So back in the early to mid 90s, I began to become aware that the technologies that were being marketed as tools to connect us might also be disconnecting us. And that's been a kind of crucial exploration for me, like the intro that the two of you gave at the beginning of this podcast, which is we can see that there are tremendously powerful and useful things that the technologies can do, including allow us to order sushi, right? Just as, as you were saying, Michael, and many other good things as well. But at the same time, we're, we've become increasingly aware that distraction and overload and fragmentation, all those things seem to be exacerbated by the current technologies. So so I've for more than 20 years I've been asking the question well how do we how do we begin to sort this out and as a longtime meditator as somebody very much interested in in mindfulness for you know 30 plus years what I began to realize was that some that mindfulness itself could potentially be a tool to help us observe ourselves when we're online observe what we're actually doing and why we're doing it and then begin to ask questions like oh, is this tool serving me well, or am I actually kind of beholden to it? Who, am I controlling this tool, or is this tool controlling me? But you need to be able to slow down and become clear-headed enough to even be able to notice when you're texting what's going on in your body or your mind, or why suddenly you're checking your email when a moment ago you were actually working on a homework assignment or a report or, or something else. And so what, I, what I've been doing over these years is certain kinds of research, for example, research on meditation and multitasking. But I've also been bringing these ideas into my teaching. And these ideas, as they've come into my teaching, have also come out in, in the last year in a book that I've published called Mindful Tech. And the basic idea of this work, I think, is really pretty important and useful, is that I've developed a series of exercises that students can do and that adults can do as well, which involve observing yourself while you're doing some technology practice, while you're using a digital device or an app or something like that, beginning to notice what's happening to you emotionally, what's happening in your mind and body, and then writing about this, sharing it um, with other people and learning from one another. Oh, I see when you, when you, you get anxious and then and that causes you to jump to some other, you know, to some other app. Isn't that interesting? Well, is, is that actually in the moment? Is that a helpful thing to do or not? So underlying uh, the, these exercises that I've been creating in my teaching and that are now available in, available in my book is this very simple idea. If we could just, in a trusting and focused environment, notice what's actually happening and what's driving us to do certain practices online, we could make our own discoveries. We could ourselves figure out what's working for us better and what isn't. And then by sharing what we're learning with other people in the class or other people in the book group, you have a chance to multiply those ideas and understandings. I get push notifications from the Washington Post and the New York Times and also my Apple News. And I get filled with anxiety and sometimes dread whenever I get a ping. And I noticed this and then it takes me probably about 10 minutes to like, you know, read more about what's going on to kind of get a handle on it. I should probably turn my notifications off 
maybe. If you think that you should, then you probably should. In other <laughs> words, the, the reason I'm saying it that way is when I talk to, to students, I basically say to them, I'm the coach, I'm not the authority figure when it comes to these exercises. In other words, I want to encourage you to make discoveries that you think are healthy and productive. So the very fact that you've noticed that you get a ping and then you're kind of, you, you lose concentration for 10 minutes and you're anxious, that would suggest to me that you should at the very least try that. In fact, if you were, th that you would write yourself a personal guideline that says for the foreseeable future, or let me just try it for a day or a week, I'm going to turn off those push notifications and then see what happens. In other words, let's bring a spirit of inquiry and experimentation into this to make it interesting and, e and even fun. So, so Michael, if that's what you think would be the right thing to do, then I would say go for it. And I hope you'll report back to me after you've yeah, done this. And I, tell me I how will, it works. Right now, I don't know where my cell phone is. So I'm going to start with that. In preparation for this interview, first of all, I, I turned off the ringer on my phone. And I also closed my email inbox because I knew that that was the one thing that was likely to distract me. So I, you've got my full attention, the two of you at least for another few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I really recommend David's book, Mindful Tech, How to Bring Balance to Our Digital Lives. It came out in 2016, and I've read it and taken really copious notes because it's really a useful book and has a lot of activities you can do yourself with others or with students to potentially think about how to approach some of these activities. Before even reading that book, I had just hit points where I was like, this isn't working and made changes. And Michael, one I made is I got rid of all notifications on my phone. And since I checked my phone enough, I found that I didn't need the notifications really to find stuff. And I even got rid of text message notifications. Because we do have some issues with communication sometimes. Yeah, and sometimes I'll miss a text for a little bit if I'm not looking. But I've found overall it's better than leaving it on for me personally. Like it's just been a better system because I get that anxiety too. So I send you a text message notification and I expect that you're going to check it. And when you don't, I'm like, what the heck is going on? So I am like that person who's making plans. The expectation that I need to be on my device and communicating with people at all times is a really high standard that I don't want to make anymore. I think that you've made a really important point there, Michael, which is which expands what we're talking about in a way. Because, you know, we're talking about having individual control over our, our devices and apps so they don't control us. But we're also operating continu continually in a social context where other people have expectations about, what, you know, for example, speed of response. So one of the things that we, we probably need to do as we make progress and begin to make changes is we need to work with our social group as well so that people can understand that, for example, if I don't respond to you absolutely immediately, it may actually mean something other than I don't like you anymore or, or something like that. So there, there are lots of things that we can do by ourselves, but there are lots of things that have to be done by the whole class, by a whole social group, maybe ultimately by the entire society. For me, for example, with the text messages, the people that are really close to me that need to be able to get a hold of me on a moment's notice, at this point, they should kind of know you have to call maybe because I may not check that text. So just give me a call because I will get a phone call. But um, so David, I'm kind of just curious after reading your book and how well you've thought about this, where do you feel like you're at in your relationship with technology? Is it still something you struggle back and forth with? And if so, like what's kind of the hardest thing? I've been doing this work for more than 20 years. And the course that I, that I created from which these exercises in the book come, I've been teaching for 11 years. 
first of all, I would never say that I'm a poster child for having, I don't want anyone to think that I've got it all worked out or that anybody will ever have it fully worked out. This is an ongoing process of learning. Some of what I do well, by the way, before I tell you what I don't do so well, is I have a tech Sabbath every week. And I've been doing that for actually for more than 25 years. So I am offline one day of the week, you know, every, every week. Um, and it used to be uh, for years that it was hard to not even want to check my email or anything else during that time. And my wife used to joke that as soon as the, the time was up, I'd run upstairs, you know, to kind of get my fix. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. I now know that there's almost as much as I'd love wonderful messages to come that are going to change my life, invitations to Paris, uh, you know, all expenses paid or whatever, love notes about whatever I've written. Most of the time, you know, I, I haven't actually missed anything. So I've gotten much better. Uh, that raging need to be checking all the time has been significantly reduced. That being said, I do carry a phone. I do carry an iPhone with me all the time. And although I don't check it every moment throughout the day, I probably still check it more than I actually really need to. And, and like a lot of my students comment, I recognize that impulse, which is, this is an awkward social moment. Maybe I should pull out my phone. And I'm, st I'm still working on that one. But overall, I do practice what I preach to the extent that I'm continually looking at my own behaviors and seeing what else I can change. And some of it, you know, it's, it's what the studies on behavioral change indicate, which if you just do something long enough, you could basically some of those urges simply go away. When I was reading your book, I realized that when I'm working on stuff on my computer, I'm like barely breathing. I'm holding my breath and have like these really shallow breaths. Now I have this kind of continual awareness because I'll just sit there and realize all of a sudden I'm just doing really shallow breathing and taking those deep breaths is just something that makes me relax so much more, takes away some of the tension when I'm working on things. When I talk with students and, I, and they write about all their experiences, one of the words that comes up most frequently when they talk about how they're feeling when they're online, and we've already touched on it, is anxiety. We feel anxious a lot. I mean, I think just we're an anxious culture in general, but the interesting thing about breathing is that when we're anxious, we tend to breathe more shallowly. And because we're breathing more shallowly, we tend to feel more anxious. So we just kind of send ourselves into these, into these feedback loops of, of potentially increasing anxiety and simply being mindful enough in the moment to do what you just said, Dan, and just say, oh, let me just take a moment to relax and breathe as I'm, I'm doing right at this very moment. It, it can cut out a lot of the stuff. And, and then we see the other really interesting thing is that people begin to notice that anxiety drives them to do things that they don't, that it's not actually in their best interest. I'm feeling really anxious. So I'll stop working on what I was, you know, on the paper I was writing and I'll go check social media and then social media will make me feel more anxious, you know, and unloved or, or whatever it is as I look for the latest fix. And then we, that builds on it. So simply the ability to be mindful enough to say, what am I actually feeling at this moment? And then to have some tools in your toolkit, including breathing more deeply, turns out to be very, very useful. We should have a, a break right here just to breathe. <laughs> Let's Everyone... do it. Can we do like a five-minute silent um, breathing exercise? <laughs> I don't on, know. On the I guess our listeners can just hit pause for five minutes and they can breathe and then revisit us. David, it's been really interesting. So I've been doing some research myself with teacher candidates about how they 
understand technology, can develop mindfulness, and also develop their own professional learning networks. So I want them to be able to both tap into social networks to grow as professionals, but also be able to be very aware of their own uses. And part of the goal of that is for them to start thinking about how they can then take those lessons into K-12. And that's where some of my research I'm hoping to do is to think about how these ideas do work or don't work and, and what works well in K-12. But in doing this initial study, and I'm, in, I'm still in the middle of, of coding and going through some of the research, the most fascinating thing to me is the habitual nature of social media use in particular. And when I ask them to take a fast from social media and then write about what's happening during that fast, a lot of students, even though they knew they'd started their fast, they just during times of the day without even thinking about it, would have their phone in their hand, would have it open and have clicked on the app. And then they had to like stop themselves. And some of the students said they, the compulsion was so strong and so habitual that they had to put their devices somewhere else, or they had to delete the apps off their phone because they just couldn't control themselves. Have you learned a bit about the science of that? Is it just that we get like these biological rushes whenever we check for new information? How does that kind of the habitual nature of social media affect us? First of all, you know, I'm a computer scientist, not a psychologist or a social scientist. I will say that you're potentially bringing in the subject of addiction. I mean, addiction is a, I tend not to use that word per se, because when we think about addiction, we tend to think of people who can't hold down jobs and, and all kinds of things like that. But it does seem very likely that the same pathways, the reward pathways that, that lead people to addiction are are active when we're constantly checking social media or email. One of the people that I'm friends with and a colleague is a woman named Dr. Hillary Cash. She has an internet and video game addiction center in the Seattle area, and I've been on programs with her. She mainly treats exactly people who who can't hold down jobs and can't have relationships because they're playing World of Warcraft, you know, 20 hours a day and and so on. But it's interesting. She she does believe that it is the same neural pathways at work for, for the rest of us. I mean, we're getting a certain kind of uh, reward that continual hope like playing the slot machine that we're going to win this time like what i was saying a few minutes ago that i'm going to get an all expense paid trip to paris you know for two so my wife and i can can go there whatever it is so there's no doubt that there's a, there are certain biological and neurological conditions at work here but again i don't explicitly bring those in in my course and in my book I peripherally talk about addiction because I think that very notion, unless you're talking about people who, who can no longer have uh, real lives, that notion kind of gets us into territory that, that may, may, may not be the most helpful to us when we're just trying to look at our own behavior and say, oh yeah, like your students um, say, it does kind of look like unconsciously I'm rushing to check Instagram or Snapchat or something like that, which by the way, my students report as well. But the good news about that is over time, you can make that conscious. That's what mindfulness practice is really about. You can over time begin to notice those impulses and not even have to act on them or make judicious decisions about when to act on them. One of my favorite television programs, Parks and Recreation, Tom Haverford, not allowed to use social media uh, for an episode. It was quite amusing. I just really like that show. It's also kind of like those AT&T commercials. Have you seen the internet, the family that loses internet access and they're like using binoculars to watch the people across the street, watch cat videos and like laying on the floor and, 
you know, having uh, withdrawal symptoms. It's kind of another good satirical look at kind of our reliance on internet and technology. If we're talking about addiction and selective reward and all of that, we do have to acknowledge the social and the commercial dimension of this, which is it's increasingly clear, and more and more people are writing and speaking about this, that a lot of these tools are actually designed exactly to snare our attention and keep it. And there's just the beginning of a movement to create ethics for the design of digital devices and apps. And I think that's a very important thing that we need to bring into education as well, that we need to look at the ways in which the larger culture and the profit motive is actually pushing companies to snare us and and to hold us. And just reading a little bit about, for example, how Facebook algorithms work. The algorithms are intended to keep us on Facebook. I was just reading Zainab Tufechi's recent book, Twitter and Tear Gas, which I highly recommend. It just came out. Um, You can buy it to support her work, but it's also available for free as a PDF online. And she talked about, for example, in 2014, how Facebook's algorithm amplified posts about the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, while at the same time burying posts about Black Lives Matter issues. And it wasn't even necessarily an intentional decision, but how the algorithm prevented people from having the more difficult discussions that we maybe need to have in society, and also those people who wanted to make change. No one was seeing their posts. And we just don't think about it. I think a lot of people are unaware how algorithms affect what we see online beyond the fact of them just preying on our kind of whatever, our biological senses or our habits or whatever it is to keep us on the platforms. That's great. Thank you for bringing that up. So I teach history, and I know some history teachers, like when they do, when they talk about transcendentalism, they actually do some sort of fast. So that's how they work this conversation into like a, into the curriculum. What are some other ways that you suggest classroom teachers bring in mindfulness and technology into, into the classroom? And well, I need to be clear that the age group that I work with is late teens and up because I'm working with, uh, with college students all the way up to adults and seniors. So I can tell you the kinds of things that I do but I can't because I don't understand developmentally where somebody in third grade is and what their what their level of attention is and yeah. and so on. I, I'm not in a position to say you should do this with third graders or something like that. The very first exercise that I teach is what I call the mindful check-in. And we've sort of been acknowledging that from the very beginning, which is I take students through a process of just asking them to notice what's going on in their breathing. What is your breathing like? Is it fast or sh- shallow? Is it fast or slow? Is it shallow or deep? And then I ask them to look at what's going on in their body and what their posture is. You're leaning on your elbow, as I happen to be doing right at this moment, and what does that feel like? Um, Then to look at their emotional state. Are you anxious? Are you happy? Are you relaxed? And then finally, to try to look at the quality of their attention. And the basic idea, and I think a lot of this could be done with even younger students, as almost as a game, just to notice that you can notice what's going on in your mind and body, because that becomes the basis for all the other exercises. Is, and, then, and then a lot of the other exercises that I do involve either taking on a particular uh, practice. Like I, do, I use email, because email is guaranteed that everybody will, will have it in the, in the university classroom, whereas I can't be guaranteed that everybody will have any particular social, social media platform. And over the course of a week, I ask the students, to spend 15 or 20 minutes a day checking email or you know, it could be on Facebook or Instagram, noticing 
what you're actually feeling, what's going on in your mind and body, keeping a log of it, and then at the end of it, writing up a little reflection. This is what I noticed. You can do that with a single app or a single application, but it gets really fun when I ask students to observe themselves multitasking. Multitasking, of course, is a huge topic, and it's pretty much guaranteed to get everybody upset because people have very strong feelings about multitasking. You know, a lot of people think it's terrible, it should, we should never do it, and other people think that it's a 21st century literacy skill, and we absolutely need to, need to do it. I am essentially agnostic about it in the sense that I think, I think multitasking has its time and place, and it can be abused, which we know can be, uh, is certainly true. And we have some activities like driving in a car that we should basically never be on our phones. But what I do in a couple of exercises is I have students not only engage in rapid multitasking, switching between different apps and windows and tasks and so on, but I actually have them record themselves doing it so that they can, you know, there are various tools out there that you can install on your laptop that will record your windows and, and speech and dings and all of that. And then I have them do some multitasking and then play the video of themselves switching. And I ask them to notice, when did you switch? And can you see why did you switch? And also to notice places where you might have been tempted to switch. For example, your phone rang or you heard a beep that said you just got a text message, but you chose not to switch. And so basically what I'm doing is using the recording mechanism to get people to notice in detail what their actual habits are when they multitask. I've never heard of anybody doing this with younger than, a, than somebody 18 or 19 years old, but I could imagine that being created as a kind of interesting game for kids who are younger. Can you notice when you switch? Or maybe you could even have a couple of kids sitting together at the same machine and, and trying to notice and then trying to figure out what their habits actually were. But here you can see again, it's the same strategy that I use throughout all these exercises, which is, can you really notice what you're doing, what your current habits are? And can you notice why those habits are working for you or not working for you? And then can you come up with some additional changes that you would make? Uh, David, I, you gave me a great research study to go ahead and go do is, is work with younger kids <laughs> to see that. Me and uh, I should mention uh, Nicole D'Amico at the University of Central Florida, who I've been working with on, on a lot of this stuff. But I think everyone can really focus on that. And I like to often ask people to think of multitasking in terms of attention shifting too, because that's often what we're doing, right? Is shift just, there are multiple things going on, but we're shifting our attention between them as opposed to actually doing several things at once. Um, exactly. Is, that's exactly right. Yes. Sometimes I get in trouble because I attention shift from my wife to the push notification that I got. And that's not the best way to have a conversation. Haven't we all done that, though? I mean, I, you know, yeah, we, we get caught out. Can You think you can pull it off, and sometimes you do. It's just a mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that right. kind of automatic response until you realize you've actually been asked a question, and all you said was mm-hmm. Yep. That's why I've been really interested in this research is because I feel like I needed to improve myself in it. So I'm very aware of how important attention is whenever we're engaging with people online or face-to-face. -face. Well, David, you've done such great work in this area, and I think it, our listeners are really going to benefit from this podcast, and hopefully they'll check out your book and some of your other work. Where can they find you and your work online? So I've actually got two websites that people can check out. I have my University of Washington website, and I also have a personal website, which have um, somewhat different materials, but I would recommend that uh, listeners check out both of my websites. 
Okay. We'll make sure to put both those in the show notes. And just thank you again for joining us today. Um, we definitely hope to continue the conversation. And Michael's going to let you know how his notification uh, change goes. <laughs> and Dan, I also want to see the results of your research. I'm really excited about the work you're doing. So I, I hope you'll stay in touch with me. Well, I'm excited for there to be results because I feel like we've been working on it for a long time. <laughs> I absolutely would share with you what we find. And we're really interested in taking what you've done in higher ed and extending it down because I think kids can benefit from a lot of the ideas you've had. It's great stuff. Well, thank you. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative, or interesting in education, or you just happen to know where my cell phone is, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. So you can subscribe to us and subscribe your friends. And if you know of any new apps we're not on, please let us know. We will join those. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. Five-star reviews help people find this podcast. One-star reviews will tweet <laughs> negative things at you. I don't know. What do we do, Michael? We don't have a one-star review policy, but it's going to really be bad. I don't really think we do anything. That just seems... <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. <laughs>